Listen, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 9. Uh, to all those who are visiting with us for the first time, we're thankful that you've chosen to worship here with us. Uh, if you, for those that don't know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the incredible privilege of serving as one of the elders, one of the pastors here with Christ Covenant Fellowship. This morning we're going to uh, study through the gospel according to John chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 13 through 41. If you would, right where you're sitting, please join me as I pray. <clears throat> uh, Father in heaven, we thank you once again, Lord, for this beautiful day that you've gifted to us. God, we are thankful for the opportunity to fellowship together. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word written and revealed to us so that we understand your will for our lives. Father, as we study through uh, these passages together, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place. Lord, that your Spirit would be at work in and through me, doing what only you can do, opening the eyes of the blind to see the glories and the majesty of Christ Jesus. Lord, would you be glorified? Would you be pleased through this time of teaching your word? Would lives be transformed for the glory of God? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last time we were in this building, we began the study of John chapter 9. And it's an encounter where Jesus and his disciples are walking along, and Jesus, Jesus notices a man who was born blind. And he goes to this man and uh, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, tells the man to go to a pool and to wash. And miraculously, miraculously, this man is given his sight for the very first time. If you recall in that encounter, the disciples had asked Jesus a very pointed question. And they said to him, why was this man born blind? Was it that he sinned or his parents sinned? And Jesus said, this man was born blind so that the works of God would be displayed. And so the, men, the man has given his sight and uh, his neighbors come to him and they begin to question this man about how was your sight given to you? And he tells them, well, it was the man named Jesus. He made mud, put it on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. And then if you recall, as we ended that section in chapter 12, or excuse me, verse 12, they're asking, well, where is this man, Jesus? And he says, I don't know. And that brings us to where we pick up this morning in verse 13. You see, Jesus had given this man for the very first time the ability to see. Now, on its own, this is an incredible act of mercy from the Lord Jesus. However, there is so much more happening here. There are greater and really loftier theological implications to this text. So as we continue to examine this encounter this morning, particularly the response of this man, and we hold it up against the response of the Pharisees, I think we will learn a significant lesson. You see, Jesus uses this man to teach us something very profound about ourselves, about the whole of humanity, in fact. You see, apart from his saving grace and his divine intervention, we are all blind. We cannot see. We stumble about in darkness. You see, throughout the scriptures, the metaphor of blindness has been used to represent 
man's inability to comprehend God's divine truth. See, in the book of Acts, Paul says that Christ sent him to the Gentiles to preach the gospel. Why? To open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that that we're darkened in our understanding, unable to see. And in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the apostle Paul again writes and says that the natural man cannot accept the things of God, that we are not able to understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. In other words, I think the point is clear. We are blind. Left to ourselves, we cannot see in our own natural state, in our flesh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot see as we ought. You see, this is an incredibly uh, pointed and intentional miracle that Jesus demonstrates. And this miracle does indeed show the divine power and authority of Christ, but this also reveals our desperate spiritual condition and our need for the Savior. You see, normally when I'd begin preaching, I would read the text first. I'd begin by reading the text before I pray, but Given the length of this passage and its arrangement, I want to do something a little bit different here this morning. Don't get nervous. We're going to stick to what the text says. Amen? Amen? Okay. All right. I just want to make sure you all are with me. I want to do something a little bit different as we study this text this morning. I want to read portions of the text as we walk through it together because this is an, it's a narrative and it's arranged in four scenes or four different conversations. So because it's a lengthier passage, I want to work through it together. So I want to take each scene one at a time. All right? Is everybody okay with that? Are we Okay, so the first scene or the first conversation would be verses 13 through 17, and this is the Pharisees who now begin to interrogate this man who has been given his sight. So we'll look at that section first. That is scene number one. So what's happened is that the man's neighbors are no doubt perplexed by this miraculous event. So what do they do? They bring this man to the Pharisees. Now, I don't believe that there's anything in the text that would suggest that they did this with malicious intent. It is most likely they're seeking the advice of their religious leaders. They're trying to decide what to make of this man and this miracle healing. You see, something really incredible, something supernatural has taken place, so they turn to their spiritual advisors for answers. If we look at verse 14, verse 14 is actually very key to this entire conversation and all of the dialogue that follows in the rest of chapter 9. You see, verse 14 says that it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes. Now, I want you to put a pin in that just for a minute because we'll come back to that in just a second. If we move forward to verse 15, it tells us that the Pharisees, much like the man's neighbors, they inquire about how he received his sight. Let's look at verse 15. And it says, so the Pharisees again asked him, uh, how had he received his sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and he washed and now I see. So now this man being questioned by these religious leaders, he gives a report of his encounter with Jesus. He recounts for them all that he knows, all that he recalls. He says, look, Jesus made mud. He put it on my eyes. I washed and praise God. Now I see. 
I want you to notice the attention that the Pharisees give to this conversation is on the how of the miracle. How did this take place? You see, they want to know the method by which the man was given his sight or healed by Jesus. See, for these religious leaders, this is a particularly important point. They want to make sure they understand this man correctly. Let's look at verse 16. It says, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, let's stop right there for a minute. If you recall, just a second ago, I mentioned in verse 14 that uh, the gospel writer John says that it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made mud and opened the man's eyes. So why is this so essential to this interrogation? Because according to the tradition of the Pharisees, they've now labeled Jesus to be a sinner who has violated the Sabbath. You see, they unfortunately don't understand God's law rightly, and they sure don't rightly apply it. In fact, they had had these uh, additions to God's command. They had had added additions to the Sabbath. So they believe that Jesus, by making mud here, has violated this Sabbath command. Now, God had obviously given the Sabbath to the nation of Israel, right? If you recall in the Ten Commandments, he tells them to honor the Sabbath, right? And then to keep it holy. And then if you move forward to the book of Leviticus and you read through the Levitical law, right? Leviticus 23, 3 says this. It says, six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. Now, rightly understood, this simply meant to rest from your vocation. So whatever it is you did to earn a living, your occupation, you would take a break from it on that day. That is how it is rightly understood and applied. However, some of the rabbis and the Pharisees, again, had made these addendums, like these additions to the Sabbath day. So in their eyes, Jesus had broken the Sabbath and at least two ways. Number one, they had deemed it inappropriate to heal on the Sabbath unless it was for life-threatening reasons. So if a person was dying, then yes, you could heal them, right? If they had an illness that was going to lead to death, then they would say, okay, it's fine, you can heal this person, right? That really just sounds silly, the whole premise of their argument. We'll get to that more in just a minute. So they believe, number one, Jesus had broken the Sabbath because he healed, right? This man's blindness wasn't going to lead him to death. So Jesus had no right in their mind to heal this man. The second way they believe Jesus had broken the Sabbath is because kneading dough or making mud also fell into this category of work in their minds, and so it was therefore prohibited on the Sabbath day. So in their mind, they're like, we've got him. We've got this Jesus dead to right. He's broken the Sabbath. He's a sinner not to be followed, right? Well, not only had Christ not violated the Sabbath according to what the Scripture commands, but as the Son of God, he is Lord over the Sabbath. So if anyone understands the value of Sabbath, uh, Sabbath rest and how to rightly apply it, it would be the Lord Jesus himself. You see, in Luke 14, Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees as they're questioning him, and they're saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them in Luke 14, verse 5, he says, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well, 
on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. See, Jesus debunks their argument with simple logic, a simple appeal to reason and rationality. Like, how are you going to deem it inappropriate to do something good on the day that the Lord has created? Their argument didn't make very much sense. You see, that proved that they were religious leaders of their day, but they didn't rightly interpret or apply the word of God. You see, Jesus would later refer to them as blind God, or blind guides, I should say. You see, these guys just didn't get it. See, rather than being compelled by the magnitude of this incredible miracle, the focus for the religious leaders is firmly on what they deem to be a Sabbath violation. See, brothers and sisters, this is the danger of unbelief. It's so stubborn. It's so obstinate. I mean, think of some of the conversations you've had in your own life with people where it doesn't matter the amount of evidence or testimony you present to them. They've already made up in their mind they will not believe, right? You can give them all of the manuscripts, right? All of the validity and the accuracy of the Bible and the evidence to support it. You can even point to secular scholars, right? And all the evidence for the legitimacy of the resurrection, and they've just made up in their mind, they stubbornly reject the word of God. You see, unbelief truly blinds us and it keeps us from seeing as we ought to. You see, in our unbelief, we cannot see the beautiful promises and the beautiful purposes of God's word. You see, people who are in their natural state, who are blind, they don't see God's commands as life-giving. They only see them as oppressive Right, they're averse to his law because of their blindness. See, ultimately, as those who walk in darkness apart from his glorious light, we cannot see Christ in all of his saving glory. See, blinded by unbelief, men don't have eyes to see Jesus in his splendor and turn to him in faith. And the unfortunate reality is we see this truth manifested in the response of the Pharisees in this encounter. You see, they ignore, they ignore this miraculous sign of Christ healing the blind man. Instead, they see and they are convinced that Jesus has violated the Sabbath as they interpret it. Therefore, it leads them to say that this man is not from God. Right, But others amongst the authorities aren't so sure. So they say, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? You see, once again, we find this truth. We find this division amongst the people over Jesus. They're like, well, maybe he is a sinner. This is what the Pharisees are saying. But then some amongst the group are like, man, how can a sinner do the things that he's doing? How is this possible? So once again, there is this great division, as there always will be, over the Lord Jesus. That's a topic we've talked about several times through the book of John, so I won't spend a lot of time there. But let's look at verse 17 here, because since they're divided, they now turn to the man and they say, well, what do you think about him? What do you make of him? He's opened your eyes, verse 17. They say, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And listen to how the man responds. He says he is a prophet. Now, his response is significant because it marks a great progression from verse 11. 
If you recall, back in verse 11, he refers to him as the man named Jesus. See, now this is a beautiful progression. This man is starting his journey to faith. And now Jesus has gone from a man to a prophet. He's not there yet. He's not there yet. We still have a ways to go. But now he's gone from Jesus the man to Jesus the prophet. So he does understand one thing, or he's starting to at least understand something that the Pharisees couldn't, that Jesus was indeed sent by God. Right? This man has not yet exercised faith in Jesus, but praise God, his vision is starting to get clearer and clearer, which is more than we can say for these religious leaders here. See, his eyes were beginning to open wider and wider, and by the grace of God, he is starting to comprehend more clearly who Jesus is, though not completely yet. See, at this point, he only understands Jesus to be a prophet. I praise God that's going to change. The Pharisees here, however, are not satisfied with this man's responses. They're not satisfied with his designation of Jesus Christ as a prophet. In fact, here, they're so hard-hearted, they don't even believe that the man was actually born blind. They're questioning that, which leads us to our second conversation or our second scene here, and that would be the Pharisees now beginning to interrogate the man's parents, and we see that in verses 18 through 23. So what happens here, these religious leaders have gone from interviewing this, pan, this man to now beginning to question his parents. Again, now they're unconvinced of the man's condition. Again, in their hard-heartedness, their stubborn rebellion, like, well, this dude probably wasn't actually blind. I don't think they've got it right. There's no way. Let's go talk to his parents. All right, they call his parents and tell them to go come testify. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. It says, the Jews did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they called his parents or called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? So they have three simple questions for this man's parents. Number one, is this your son? Number two, was he born blind? And number three, how does he now see? How does he now see? And for reasons that will become apparent here in just a little bit, his parents are very apprehensive about answering certain parts of their questions. They're more than happy to answer, but they answer very cautiously. You see, in verse 20, they confirm that it is indeed their son and that he was indeed born blind. However, in verse 21, they plead ignorance about this matter. Verse 21. It says, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. So they're more than happy to say, yes, this is our son. And yes, he was born blind. But how he sees, we don't know anything about that. In fact, look, buddy, don't ask us any more questions. All right, go ask him. He's grown. He can answer for himself. Please stop asking us questions. Okay, we're, we're done with this conversation. And you may ask yourself, well, why did they respond that way? Why are they asking this or acting this way in response to the questions that they're being given? Well, praise God, John includes that here, and we understand, we get a glimpse of why they respond the way that they do. Let's look at verse 22. Here's a parenthetical statement that John includes. It says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. 
For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So though the, man, the man's parents claimed to be ignorant about how he was given his sight, this text tells us that they were indeed aware that Jesus had healed him. I mean, we'd be naive to think that they didn't have an understanding about what Jesus had done for their son. There's nothing in the text to suggest that they were present there, but they probably knew what Jesus had done in giving their son his sight. But again, John includes here the reason that they respond the way that they do. It says they feared the Jews and excommunication from the synagogue. See, excommunication would have been a a terrible punishment because that would have cut them off from religious and social life there in Jerusalem in the temple, right? They wouldn't have had the ability to worship God and to meet together. This would have been a horrible, horrible punishment. And this isn't something that's unique to just this encounter here. We'll see this idea of those who would publicly profess Jesus Christ, but they failed to do so because of this fear of excommunication. If we fast forward to John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, and I'll read this quickly. John writes this and he says, Many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the Jews, the religious leaders, had made it very apparent if anyone attributes any glory or confesses Christ at all, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. We're going to cut off your ability to worship. And so his parents were intimidated by that. Brothers and sisters, here's a pivotal point. Here's a place where we can kind of really press in and apply this. See, this is an example of people who know the truth, but out of fear, they refuse to stand and be a courageous witness. See, we can apply this here. This is a great place for us to stop and make this a personal application. And for us to ask ourselves, are we boldly proclaiming the message of the gospel? Are we committed to be witnesses of Christ, those who go forward speaking the truth to a culture and to a world who so desperately needs it? Or are we cowering in fear? Are we capitulating? Do we bury our faith for the sake of self-preservation? Like, yeah, I know the truth, and I know I should probably speak up here, but, man, I I don't really want to get involved because it may cost me. Like, what are my friends going to think about me? What are my parents going to say? What are my roommates going to say? What about my girlfriend or my boyfriend? What if, if I profess Christ, and I know I should in this moment because it's right and it's true, man, but I just don't want to get involved. I don't want to speak up. See, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of believers fold to this cultural pressure in the name of unity and for the sake of success. They've compromised the truth. My hope and prayer is that we would be a people who speak what God has said boldly, courageously, lovingly as well, right? We want to speak the truth in love, but brothers and sisters, we have to stand firm on the truth. We have to say what God has said, right? Nothing happens by accident. Everything happens according to God's divine appointment. So when you're given those opportunities... 
When those conversations arise and people come to you and they ask you about Christ or they ask you about particular issues and you have an opportunity to engage with the gospel, man, God's given you that for a reason. Don't be scared. Stand up. Stand up. Let us be people who preach the word of God, who proclaim the gospel no matter what may come, no matter what it may cost us. See, as we continue on, the parents here, their witness at least established that a legitimate miracle had occurred. But again, the Pharisees show us the sad reality of unbelief. And no matter how much evidence, no matter how much testimony to corroborate the truth of what the Lord had done, it wouldn't convince the Pharisees. It would not compel them to believe in Jesus. So they have no reason to deny that this man was born blind and that he actually can see now, that Jesus has opened his eyes, yet they're unwilling to believe. So still very unsatisfied and averse to the possibility that Jesus' claims about himself were true and valid and legitimate, they once again go back to the man. And they want to interrogate him yet a second time. So that leads us to scene number three here. And this is the Pharisees once again interrogating the man born blind. And we see that in verses 24 through 34. It says, for the second time, verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So when they say give glory to God, this may feel like, okay, are they saying that Jesus need, or this man needs to honor God in some way and to fall down and worship God. I want to make sure that we understand this correctly. See, they feel like this man's story is missing something. You see, in their determination, they believe Jesus is a sinner who's broken the Sabbath. So there's no way he could have done this miraculous thing of giving sight to a blind man. So in other words, they believe that this man is lying. So when they say give glory to God, what they're saying is, look, buddy, tell the truth. Right? Honor God. I know you're deceiving us. There's no way this sinner has done this. Right? This is very similar in language, if you recall, to Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, where he goes to Achan to confront him about his sin, and Joshua says to him, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. See, here's the same challenge. They're trying to get this man to just stand up and tell the truth. They're so convinced that they're right. Like, give glory to God. There's no way this man did this. He's a sinner who's broken the Sabbath. See, they want him to acknowledge what they believe to be true about Jesus. See, in verse 25, he responds to them, though, and he says, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing that I know, I was blind and now I see. You see, this man essentially says, look, I can only work with what I've got, right? I can only tell you what I know. I don't know if this man's a sinner. All I know is I was blind and praise God, now I can see. Friends, is this not the testimony of every Christian throughout history? Amen? That one day I was blind and praise God by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the faithful proclamation of the gospel, now I can see. Amen. The life-changing, transformative power of the gospel opens our eyes to be able to see like this man. You know, sometimes it's more than you can explain, isn't it? 
I'm living proof of that. I don't know why I'm standing here because I know where my life used to be and I know what I used to love and I know what I used to do. But praise God, now I see. If you're a Christian in here, that's you. That you had the scales on your eyes removed one day gloriously and now you're alive to the realities of Christ Jesus. You see, for this man, he could only continue to share the undeniable truth of what Jesus had miraculously done for him. He was totally satisfied leaving everything else to the religious leaders. You guys decide for yourself what you want to believe about him. If you want to believe he's a sinner, that's fine. I can only tell you what he's done for me. Again, that's our testimony as we go into the world. I can tell you what Jesus has done for me. I can tell you what the Bible says about Christ. It's up to you to decide. It's up to you to decide. And you're never going to see him until the Lord opens your eyes. You're never going to see him as you ought to. You see, for these Pharisees now, they're, they're at a dead end. They have nowhere left to go. So what do they do? They begin to cover the same ground again, asking the same questions. In verse 26, they once again go to the how. Well, how did he do it? And here they're no doubt hoping to find some sort of contradiction in the man's story. Or they're hoping to find some reason to bring a charge against Jesus. And the man responds to them in verse 27. And this is what he says. He answered them, I have told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So he says to them, look, I told you guys already. You're too stubborn. You're too blind. You will not listen. Why do you keep asking me these things? Is it because you also want to be his disciple? Uh-oh. That's the wrong thing to say. I mean, this is really going to anger these men. How dare this man, this common man, talk to them in such a manner? I mean, these brothers were incensed, and they're armed, and they're ready for a response to this dude. Let's look at verses 28 and 29. It says, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Can't you just hear the disdain in their response? Like, you might be his disciple, but we're not. In fact, we're disciples of Moses. They've got the chest out and they're puffed up and they're real confident, right? We're disciples of Moses. You can be Jesus' disciple. I mean, this man had really struck a nerve. They're incredibly upset. They say, you might be his disciple, but as for us, we are disciples of Moses. See, there's nothing more that the Pharisees, this is them really just pulling out their uh, spiritual security blanket, if you will. They're drawing upon their position as the disciples of Moses. See, they took great comfort in that. They studied the writings of Moses and they esteemed him so highly. If you recall back in John 5, when this pressure about Jesus breaking the Sabbath really began, right, or supposedly breaking the Sabbath, I should say, back in John 5, where Jesus heals the man who was lame and it's on the Sabbath and he tells him to pick up his mat and go home. And this is where all of this tension begins to rise, right? They're like, Jesus is a sinner. He's told this man to break the Sabbath. If you recall, that's where it all started. But uh, they had, uh, Jesus told them that they would be indicted and it wasn't going to be him that accused them. He said, it's going to be Moses who accuses you on the last day. John 5, verses 45 and 46. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, There's one who accuses you, 
Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. You see, for these guys, they're actually self-defeating with their comments. When they say, we know God has spoken to Moses, that's incredibly ironic. For God indeed had spoken to Moses. And Jesus makes it clear that Moses had written about him. You see, if they truly understood the writings of Moses, as they claimed to understand, they claimed to interpret it rightly, if they really understood it, then they would have understood that Moses had written about Jesus. See, nevertheless, the Jews believe in Moses, and therefore they have no desire to believe in Jesus, who they've determined to be a lawbreaker. See, this man might commit himself to an outcast like Jesus, but they would not. In fact, they claim, look, we don't even know where this dude comes from. They say, we don't even know where he comes from. And that, too, is ironic because if you recall back in chapter 7, verse 27, they said, we know where this man comes from. You see, this shows us even the inconsistency and unbelief. These guys can't even get their story together. You know, one minute it's, yep, we know where you come from. The other next minute it's like, we don't know where this dude comes from. He can't be from God, though. He must be a sinner. You see, in one sense, they claimed to know where Jesus had come from, and they were right, an insignificant family in Nazareth. But they didn't know where he come from because they didn't have any idea about his divine origin. They didn't understand that he was the son of God and that heaven was his home. Once again, there's irony found in their statement because it's, it's both simultaneously true and false. But at any rate, the man responds yet again, and he devastates their argument. Let's look at verse 30. The man answered, and he said, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. See, this man says, this is amazing. This is incredible. While I don't believe this man has totally understood yet, again, the identity of Christ, he's exercising greater spiritual insight than these religious authorities. You see, they didn't know where Jesus had come from. And then you add that to the fact that he had done something so miraculous, it leads this man to one conclusion. He must be from God. Although that conclusion falls terribly short of who Christ is. You see, Jesus wasn't just simply a man sent by God. Jesus wasn't just a prophet who was speaking on behalf or under the authority of God. Jesus is the God-man, the only begotten, the perfect son of God, the word made flesh, the one who had come to rescue fallen humanity. And this man is getting closer to understanding that every moment. But the Pharisees were blind, dead. They had no ability to see Again, the healed man doesn't yet have the eyes to see Christ in all of his splendor, but he is showing a beautiful progression. Let's look at verses 31 through 33. It says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world has began, never since the world began, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I hear this man uh, appeals to simple reasoning and logic. In fact, it's reasoning and logic that the Pharisees would have held to be true. 
You know, we have no reason to believe that this man had any type of formal theological training, yet here he is standing toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of Israel. His argument is based on an idea that scriptures seem to affirm, right, that God does not hear the cries or the plea of sinners. You know, texts like Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist writes, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Or Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood. We also see this concept, if you just want to write these down, I'm not going to read them, Job 27, 9. And Job 35, 13, you can reference those later. You see, again, this man's argument is is simple, it's honest, and it's something that these Pharisees also would have agreed to according to their study of the Scriptures. So he lays out his argument and once again points to the undeniable reality of the miracle itself. He says, never since the world began has anyone ever had the eyes of a man born blind been opened, right? His conclusion is logically grounded upon an elementary argument that he's constructed based on their own beliefs, right? If Jesus were not of God, he could do nothing, right? He makes it simple. Again, I want to go back to this point quickly. The dude didn't have any type of theological training, right? He simply appealed to what the scriptures had said, right? To what these guys believed as well. Let that be an encouragement to you, right? Some of, who, some of you who want to engage, right, in these apologetic conversations, who want to share your faith in the public square, right? Maybe you're hesitant to do so. It's like, ah, I, don't, I never went to seminary. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. Ah, I can't do that. Be, be courageous, Simply say what the text has said, right? Be bold. Here's this man combating these religious leaders of his day. And listen, they're unable to really argue back with him at this point. And they're furious that he would even have the audacity to lecture them. So they respond, how? By just hurling insults at this man. Let's look at verse 34. It says, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And so it says that they cast him out. Now, this is nothing new here. It's a tactic, tactic we've seen before. See, they couldn't win the debate, so they just simply begin to attack the individual, right? We saw the same thing back in John chapter 8, verse 41, where Jesus is having this discourse with these religious leaders, these same guys, right? And Jesus is telling them that actually God isn't your father, right? You're children of the devil, Right? And then they say to Jesus, we weren't born in sexual immorality, you were. Right? So they couldn't debunk his argument, so they just begin to attack his character. They do the same thing here. They defame this man in an attempt to dismiss or dismiss the glaring truth of his argument and his testimony. Right? They just try to uh, dress down this man right? to defame him because they can't handle the truth that he's given to them. They want nothing to do with that. Listen, you may encounter that in your own life, right? Sometimes we're in these conversations with people and it seems like you may be giving them the work, right? You're pointing to the truth. And so what do they do? They just start to attack you. Don't take it personally. That's okay. They attacked our Savior too, 
We're only going to share in his suffering. Amen. So they try to dress down this man, and they're saying that he was born in utter sin. Now, this is them shooting themselves in the foot once again. Because when they say you were born in utter, utter sin, they're saying, well, that's why you were born blind. But that was a reality they had tried to deny earlier on. I believe back in verse 17, that's why they called the parents of this man. Because they didn't actually believe that he was born blind. And now here they are saying, you're the one that was born in utter sin. This is them acknowledging a fact they had earlier tried to deny. The, hey, guess what? These guys aren't very good at arguing. They're not doing a very good job. They're not doing themselves any favors here. Sadly, this section ends with the Pharisees casting the healed man out of the synagogue, which is a punishment his parents had narrowly avoided. And so now here we begin to transition to our final scene and probably the most significant portion of the text, this final piece to the passage. And this scene number four is the conversation between Jesus, the healed man, and the Pharisees. And we see that in verses 35 through 41. You see, here we see Jesus re-entering this narrative. If you recall, Jesus gives sight to this blind man. He uh, makes the mud, puts it on his eyes, and sends him away to wash. And then he's given his sight. And then the man never sees Jesus until right now, until this moment. This will be the first time this man has laid eyes on the Savior. Let's look at verse 35. It says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? You see, when Jesus heard that the man was excommunicated, he went to find him. This shows us something about our Lord Jesus, that his loving intentionality is seen once again. If you recall, beginning in chapter 9, Jesus saw the blind man and went to him. Right? We're seeing Jesus uh, pursuing this man yet again. You see, just as the Lord had done when granting him his physical sight, here, once again, it is Jesus who takes the initiative. Jesus seeks him out. You see, when I began this sermon, I said this text would teach us some beautiful realities. It's going to teach us some wonderful truths. Here's one of those wonderful realities. See, just as Jesus took the initiative with this man, it reminds us that it is God who takes the divine initiative in salvation. You see, if the Lord doesn't act, no one would be saved. Because it's not in our nature to seek the Lord. You see, the Bible teaches us that none of us are righteous, that none of us understands. We just read that, right? That no one seeks for God. You see, just as those who are physically blind are unable to restore their own sight, those of us who are spiritually blind have no ability to see as a result of our own willpower. You see, salvation is dependent upon God's loving initiative, his divine power, and his saving grace. But be encouraged. See, brothers and sisters, just as the Lord Jesus sought this man in his loving mercy, God has sought each and every one of you as well. See, when you were dead in your sin and you had turned to your own way, the Lord saw fit to save you when you could not save yourself. See, Christ came to a sinful and fallen world filled with rebellious humanity, and he willingly laid aside his heavenly privileges, and he marched to the cross, laying down his own life to save and gather a people for himself. Brothers and sisters, we had nothing to do with that. We didn't choose him. He came to us. 
Listen, no amount of striving or straining or toiling would ever get us to God. He sought out each of us. And Jesus reminds us, reminds us of that reality. He says, he came to seek and save the lost. You see, this truth should remove any feelings of arrogance or pride. We can't attribute our salvation to anything we've done. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your eyes and your heart have been opened to see and receive Christ and turn to him only by the grace of God. Praise God for that reality this morning. Amen, somebody. Somebody, anybody thankful for that. You see, friends, now we begin to see, no pun intended, the beautiful theological implications of this miracle. There is so much more happening here than Jesus simply giving this man the ability to see physically. See, Jesus has something eternally greater to offer this man, something even more amazing. What Jesus is going to offer this man is spiritual sight. Let's look at verses 35 through 38. Again, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. You see, Jesus goes and finds this man, and he asks him a crucial question. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? See, this question is incredible. It's significant. It's a question about the man's faith and trust in Christ. See, we've talked about this before, so I won't unpack this again, but the Son of Man is a messianic title that comes from Daniel chapter 7, and it was a title that Jesus often used to refer to himself. So here Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And Jesus isn't asking, do you believe that he exists? Do you believe that he's real? He's asking, do you trust in him? And not simply as a miracle worker or a prophet, but as a savior, as the Messiah. You see, this is a question about personal faith in the Lord Jesus. And see, I said a a moment ago that God is indeed the divine initiator in salvation, but faith never happens apart from a response. You see, Jesus asked this man a question, and the man must respond. He has to respond in some way. See, Jesus says, do you believe Brothers and sisters, this is a fundamental question. You see, it isn't about what I believe. It's not about what my parents believe or my friends believe or what your neighbors believe. The question about faith is, do you believe? See, my faith can't save you. Your grandparents' faith can't save you. Your teachers at your school, their faith in Jesus Christ can't save you. My faith as your pastor can't save you. Do you believe? It's the fundamental question that everyone must answer. And it's an invitation. Jesus is extending the invitation to this man to put his trust in him. And the man responds and says, who is he that I may believe in him? See, this man is beginning to show that he's already being transformed. He has an eagerness, a desire to believe. And see here, Jesus, uh, similar to his response to the woman at the well, he identifies himself. He says, I'm him. 
the one who's talking to you now, I am the son of man. And we arrive at verse 38. We see the culmination of this man's journey to faith. He responds to Jesus by saying, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. What an incredible progression this has been. This man's sight has gotten clearer and clearer. Praise God for the grace and mercy of Jesus that he would open the eyes of this sinful man to see the reality of the Savior. See, this man has gone from Jesus the man to Jesus the prophet to now Jesus Lord, the one to be worshiped. Friends, this is what it's all about. If you're wondering, man, why in the world would John take one whole chapter, 41 verses, for this singular story, for the story of a man we never even learn his name? We don't learn what city he's from, if he has a family, nothing. Why does John spend so much time on this? Well, brothers and sisters, this is why. So these are the works of God that Jesus was referring to back in verse 3. This is the point of this text. You see, this man is a depiction of the whole of humanity. That we are all in need of having our eyes open to the reality of Jesus. See, the nation of Israel had a long history of being blind to the things of God. See, both Isaiah and Jeremiah referred to them as those who have eyes yet do not see. See, Jesus would even label the Jews as those while, who, while seeing, they do not see. See, while this is certainly a problem that plagued the nation of Israel, spiritual blindness is not exclusive to the Jews. This is all of us apart from God's saving grace. See, unless God opens our eyes to see the glories of Christ, we will continue to walk about lost in darkness. That is the point of this miracle, to show us our blindness, our need for spiritual sight, our need to be alive and awaken to the glories of Christ Jesus. I want you to imagine, if you will, think of a person who's been born blind. They've never had the benefit of using their eyes to see. And I want you to try to uh, imagine, try to explain a sunset to this individual. Then I want you to consider this person one day, miraculously, whether it's through the grace of God, through some miraculous surgery, they're suddenly given their sight. And now they can see the sunset for themselves and behold the glory of God's creation. Now I want you to think about walking in darkness your entire life buried under the weight of your sin, blind to the glories of Christ. And then one day by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you see the Savior for who he is. And you're alive to the realities of Christ. And this glorious Savior that's given his life for you. See, when your eyes are finally open, there's only one appropriate response. And the man shows that to us here to worship at the feet of this glorious Savior. See, as we finish our time together this morning, Jesus reminds them that this is the reason that he's come into the world. Look at verses 39 through 41. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. But some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? 
And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus' point is simple here, and we're going to finish quickly. Jesus' point is simple here. Those who are blind will be able to see. Right, so for those of us who are aware of the weight of our sin and we know we're blind, we know we walk in darkness and we look to Christ in faith, he opens our eyes and we're able to see. But Jesus says to all those who see, or at least those who think they see, so the Pharisees, right, he says your guilt is going to remain. You're going to remain in darkness. You are actually blind and have no understanding for that. See, they're without excuse. They can't plead ignorance, especially when they respond. So we understand that Jesus comes to this man, but obviously the Pharisees are nearby. So they're like, oh, are we blind too? Surely this dude ain't talking about us. We understand the scriptures. We're sons of Moses. We know the word of God. There's no way this dude is talking about us. Jesus says, because you see, now your guilt remains. See, they're arrogant. They think they see, but they're actually blind. Jesus says, for judgment I came into the world. And I want you to understand what he means by that. Jesus came to redeem the world, to save a lost humanity. So when he talks about judgment, hey, listen, to redeem some, you got to condemn others, right? Jesus is the ultimate judge or determiner of where a man stands. And how you respond to him will determine if you're in right standing before the Lord. That's what it means when Jesus says, I come to judge. And he's judged that these men will remain under their sin, under just condemnation. As we close our time together this morning, for as much as the blind man was able to see Christ and worship him as Lord, the Pharisees failed to realize that what Jesus is actually doing here is fulfilling the dawning of the messianic age. You see, as we close, I would be remiss if I didn't point to the obvious messianic undertones of this passage. See, John has written this gospel account strategically including specific encounters for his divine purpose. See, his desire is that you would believe in Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name. See, the Old Testament was full of texts telling of this promised Messiah, this Savior that was to come and save God's people. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says this, The eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is Jesus fulfilling these words. See, Jesus is showing us that he is the one to fulfill all that was said in the law and the prophets. If you recall back in chapter 5, he had caused the lame man to walk, to get up with joy and to go home. And here he's opening the eyes of the blind. Jesus is that promised Savior and Messiah, the one who's come to redeem God's people. You see, as we finish our time together this morning, I want to end by simply issuing a challenge to everybody in this room. To everyone in this room. First to the believers, by God's grace, those who have had their eyes open, I would ask you to consider how good is your vision really? You've been gifted the ability to see Christ in all of his glory, to look to him in faith and praise God. But we all have blind spots in our lives. Does God need to open your eyes to see areas of your life where you haven't submitted to him? Ways in which you're not walking in obedience, that you're not in step with the gospel. 
Maybe there are inconsistencies in your theology or the way that you apply or understand God's word. Brothers and sisters, study the word of God and prayerfully ask that he would open your eyes to see him more and more and more each day to live for his glory. To the unbeliever, my challenge to you would be this. You think you see, but do you really? Maybe you believe your life is good and right and true as you understand it. And you have no need for this Savior named Jesus Christ. Maybe you believe Jesus is simply a man. Maybe you believe a little bit more. Maybe you think he is a prophet, one who was sent by God to teach humanity some really great moral truths. Maybe you think Jesus is just a fictional character in a fictional story. All of those fall desperately short of who Christ is. To the unbeliever in the room, my hope is that God would be at work even now, that the Holy Spirit would move you, compel you to look to Christ in faith, that your eyes would be open for the very first time to see Jesus in all of his saving glory, and that you would respond to him as this blind man does, that you would worship him as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. God, we thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, we thank you for the way your word speaks to our hearts. God, I pray for anyone in this room this morning whose eyes are still shut. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the reality of yourself, that they wouldn't continue to grope about in darkness, to stumble about lost and blind, but they would see Jesus Christ in all of his saving glory and all of his mercy and turn to him in faith. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for our church body. Lord, that you would even open our eyes to things that maybe we're missing. That we would see you more and more each day. That through studying your word, through time and fellowship with other brothers and sisters, we would continue to grow and become more and more alive to the reality of this great Savior that is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to boldly go into the world and share the truth. Regardless of what may come, regardless of any persecution, let us not be those who are fearful, but those who move forcefully to share the gospel and tell of this coming kingdom, this Savior, this Messiah, for your glory and for the good of a lost humanity. Lord, would you be glorified in us today? And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.